On an October day, 500 years ago, in the year 1517, a German brother, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, published or posted his 95 thesis about what was tragically and dramatically wrong and off with the church. Historians now mark this day, 500 years later, as the beginning of the Great Reformation. And uh, since that time period, the church has been greatly altered. Civilization in the West has been greatly transformed and changed. About 25 years ago, uh, an Anglican bishop by the name of Mark Dyer put out this idea that every 500 years or so, Western society has gone through kind of what he calls a giant garage sale, like a a rummage sale in which the convictions, the big ideas that we for a long time all held to be true, like they all come up for grabs or they all come up for reevaluation. And 500 years ago, that was true. And in our present day and age, if you would subscribe to this theory, and I think there's some historical truth to this, that things are once again kind of coming up for grabs and are in a bit of hmm, an unsettled state. He further notes that in these periods of transition, when these rummage sales happen, there usually is a brand new form of communication technology, and it usually is accompanied by some incredible uh, human discovery or journey that has previously been thought impossible. So 500 years ago, a few generations before Martin Luther, the printing press was invented, right? The Gutenberg printing press. Without a printing press, there is no Martin Luther. I mean, he would exist, but we would not know who he was. Like, without the ability to spread and share information quickly and easily via print in many languages. In our own day and age, in the last generation or two, has there been any crazy new communication revolution that previously did not exist? I wonder, what could it be? I mean, seriously, my grandparents didn't even have a telephone. And now... I mean, the average American citizen is on an electronic device 14-plus hours a day. Like, the world has changed in front of us, well, whether we know it or not. Our thinking is changing, whether we know it or not. 25 years before that October day in 1517, 25 years before, it was 1492. And a certain man, Cristobal Colon, got in his ship. And where did he sail? 1492, Columbus... Right? Europeans, Westerners, were sailing around the world, coming to America. I mean, sailing around the tip of Africa, traveling to India, traveling China, discovering this ancient civilization that had invented a similar printing press 600 years before Germans invented one. Like, that's a humbling thought, right? (laughs) In our own day and age, Have there been any new remarkable journeys that previously would be unimaginable? I mean, in the 60s, human beings walked on the surface of the moon. We are sending things up to space on a almost a weekly... We're talking about a journey to Mars. 
This is to say nothing about the microscopic interior journey which science is able to take us on these days. I mean, we are exploring places both in terms of extraterrestrially and internally that are previously unimaginable. Things are changing around us. And just like 500 years ago, when Brother Martin poured kerosene on the fires of revolution and reform that were already in the air, so in this day and age, things are changing, whether we like it or not. For the next five weeks, we are going to reflect and remember what theologians have come to call the five solas. Sola is the Latin word meaning alone, kind of five crucial pillars of the Reformation. But we're not just going to look backwards. We're going to look at our present day and age and with, Lord willing, a little Holy Spirit imagination, wonder about what the Holy Spirit or God might be taking his church in the future. Because just like the church needed serious reform 500 years ago and underwent this reform, though many resisted, so the church 100 years from now will look radically different than what you and I have grown up with. Here are the five solas of the Reformation. We'll take one a week. Today will be sola gratia, or grace alone. Next week will be sola fide, or the fact that we experience God through faith alone. Third week, solus Christus, that the work of Christ alone is our foundation for everything. Fourth week, sola scriptura, that when it comes for finding a platform, a reliable platform to stand on in your life, a rule for faith and life, the Bible is the best one on the market. And the final week, solo deo gloria, praise and honor and glory to God and God alone. So today, as Christians all over the world come to Jesus' table, the words are grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, uh, give us such a clear picture of what the scripture says about God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. As for you, as for you all, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The net on this is as wide as possible. It is a common problem to every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. What is the problem? Sin is our problem. The sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. God's word paints a picture of what I call the triple threat of sin. Like we are being beset on three different fronts at all times. If you ever wonder why you're miserable, this is why. Like <laughs> We have sin built into our nature. We are born. Nobody is born perfect. Nobody is born right. We are all born off kilter and bent in common and individual ways. It's in us. There is also sin around us, just in the ways of the world. Have you noticed that the world is not perfect yet? And beyond the world that we see, there are 
spiritual powers in the unseen world, and there is a personal power, Satan, who is trying to organize a revolution in the universe to overthrow God and cause as much trouble as he can for every atom in the universe in the meantime. It's a triple threat of sin inside us, around us in the world, and in the unseen spiritual powers. And Paul then says, all of us, everybody, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like all the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. All of us. No one escapes. This is our common problem. And the common consequence of our common problem, what sin always does, is to disunify and dislocate and to break relationships up. I mean, what sin basically does for human beings and gods is it separates us. It breaks the love and unity that God intended for there to be there. What sin does between brother and brother, sister and mother, friends and neighbors, sin always pulls apart and separates and individualizes I mean, a great picture of hell is a million people all living five miles away from each other because nobody can stand each other's presence anymore. That's what sin does. Have you noticed in our American society of late, we seem to have a little disunity problem. Have you noticed this? This is nothing new in a way. I mean, we've always been, God bless America, free to speak our mind, free to protest, free to fight for what's right, and we have had some epic fights for what's good. We have had some epic fights in our history for the downtrodden, for those who are neglected, for the poor and powerless and overlooked. But our current disunity is fueled by what I term as an increasing lack of civility. Like it's one thing to respectfully disagree. It's another thing to just be plain uncivil to one another. In the church, we are also not immune from this. 500 years ago, in Brother Martin Luther's life, there was one church in the Western world It was the Roman Catholic Church. There was one church. It was in desperate need of cleanup. It had horrible, tragic problems. It needed reform desperately. But there was one church. 500 years later, we have literally tens of thousands of denominations in the Western world. Is this a good thing? What does it say to the rest of the world about our witness when we keep separating and then separating again and then separating again? The bad fruit, probably the worst fruit of the Great Reformation of 500 years ago is this. If I disagree with you, if we agree about 99% of stuff, but we disagree about one thing and I think that's really important, we'll have fighting words and then I'll be like, you know what, I'm done with you. I'm going to start my own thing. Thank you very much. 
there is nothing in the scripture in the gospel that would mm, lead us to think that God would intend that for his body. Always going to have personality differences, always going to have style differences, but this thing of tens of thousands of denominations, this is not good for our witness in the world. So I think of it this way. When I was a kid, I grew up with four siblings. I mean, there would be times where we would fight, yell at each other, you know, hate each other. I had a big brother when we were really mad at each other. I mean, if you came up to me on certain days and be like, hey, Greg, is that your brother? I'd be like, no, he's dead to me. (laughs) Right? I mean, if you had siblings, I mean, you know how much you can hate one of your siblings. Right? It's those that we are closest to that just... So even though I might have felt this way as a kid, I don't have a brother. As far as my parents were concerned, we were still their five kids, three sisters, you know, right? Like they never saw us like, oh, our family is breaking apart. We now have two families. That was never their thought. For my parents, it was just, they're kids, but this is our family. We're trying to love all our kids. I imagine this is how God sees our church. The, I mean, the big universal church. I mean, God knows about all our bad blood, all our differences over doctrine and practice, but when God looks from heaven, he sees past all our, they're dead to me, I can't believe, like, we're not even related. Like, God sees past all that, and he sees the one church that he has called and chosen and adopted to be his family. Like, that is how God sees all of us, whether you're here today or whether you're I mean, the church in China, the church in Brazil, the church 2,000 years ago in Egypt. Like, he sees all of us together just as his kids. And of course, we have different personalities, different styles, but we are his family. This truth, this truth of the basic unity of the church, like that truth in my humble opinion, is a deeper truth than any of the other doctrines that we fight or argue or hate each other over. Are we supposed to baptize infants or only adults? You're wrong. I'll never go to church with you again. It's such an important truth. It's more important that God sees that we are all one family in Christ than what your doctrine of baptism is. All right, we're going to continue in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read all together because I think God's word says exactly this. Please read the yellow. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. How were you saved? Grace. I mean, you might do some great stuff. You might be an awesome person. How are you saved? Grace. What about the believers 400 years ago who worshipped in crazy ways that we won't approve of? How were they saved? Grace. What about superstitious Christians who haven't had the advantage of a Western education? How are they saved? Grace. How about folks 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem? How were they saved? Grace. The same grace saves everybody. The ground is level at the cross. 
The ground in front of Jesus' empty tomb, it is level, no matter where you come from or how much cash you have. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show, might show off the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Not to put too fine a point on it, but read again the line in yellow. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, even this faith, is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace, through faith. Not saved by our faith, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, through faith. Our part in God's big story of weaving a big people and family together for himself, our part is to cooperate with the wind of the Holy Spirit that keeps this window of faith open so that day after day we can be reminded that the most important thing about any of us is that we have been saved by faith. You wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you look horrible. And your first thought, the truest thought you could think is, I have been saved by faith, grace. I have been saved. Like that is more true than, I need coffee. (laughs) Or, wow, I look old. Look in the mirror and if you can, let the Holy Spirit whisper to you, wow. Grace enough, even for me. In conclusion, I'm going to ask for your sharp mental attention for about two minutes. Okay? Um, So we are saved by grace of all the things in creation. We are God's handiwork. Like, the the greatest thing he has done. We are his handiwork. I want to illustrate this uh, with something uh, philosophers and teachers call the trolley problem. Uh, So this is kind of like a, a moral question if you can pretend along with me, you're standing on a train track, okay? There's a train barreling forward at you, and about a half a mile away in a little, like, canyon, there are five people working on the train track with their back to the train. They can't hear it's coming. If someone doesn't do something intimately, like, the train is going to hit them. You look around, and right next to you, there is a lever that if you pull it, the train will get uh, rerouted, shunted off onto a sidetrack, The only problem is there's another person like standing right there at the junction. So if you pull this lever, the train is going to smack one person instead of five people. And the ethical question is, if it's you standing there, do you pull the lever? And scientists love to put people in MRI chambers and look at what their brains do when they ask them this question. For nine out of ten people, like the accountant part of your brain lights up and you're like, Oh, pull the lever and one person dies. But five people are going to die if I don't pull the lever. Sacrifice the one to save five. Pull the lever. Nine people out of ten say. If you change the question a little bit, instead of being next to the lever, if you're on a bridge 
and there's a person standing on the bridge next to you. Train is barreling ahead. This time there's no lever, but you think, if I pushed this other person off the bridge, the train would hit them and the train would screech to a stop before it hits the five people a half mile down the tracks. Do you do that? Only one out of ten people. This makes a different part of our brain get active because you think, oh, you can't, I can't physically push another person to their death. Don't kill people. <laughs> right? That's the part of our brain that gets active. Don't kill people. Don't push people. That's horrible. Even if five other people are going to die, don't kill somebody. Interestingly, only psychopaths and monks and nuns would push the person off the bridge. (laughs) I'd like to say more about that, but I won't right now. Here's the thing. I mean, this question has been framed to tens of thousands of people. Here's the thing that nobody thinks of. It's not suggested. I could jump off the bridge and sacrifice myself. and save six people. Now, when it comes to hmm, the worst train of horrible consequences that there ever has been, sin, the triple threat of sin, when it comes to that train barreling down on everyone who has ever been born, God himself faced a dilemma similar to us, and it occurred to the heart of God I will sacrifice my only son to save everyone else. Like that is how the heart and mind of God works. That is grace. A surprising, an unexpected, a totally out of the blue act of love that didn't occur to anybody else that rescues us from the train that is bearing down on us. But here's the thing. Written into the code of the universe is this deep law that when somebody sacrifices their own life, death works back upon itself and that person's sacrifice not only sets others free, but even death itself is overturned. So not only does Jesus, out of pure grace, sacrifice himself on the cross, But the universe itself, the love of God itself, the way God wrote the code of the universe, Christ has to come back to life because of the purity of his love and sacrifice. Friends, this is grace. This is the story of grace alone. This is everybody's story if you are walking the path of Jesus. Totally free. Totally unexpected. Death and life for everybody. Will you pray with me? God, today, if we came into this room and we are standing firm and feel like we are strong and well, God, humble us and help us plant our feet firmly on the promises of Jesus Christ, that that would be the only place where we would stand and derive our confidence. And God, if we are beset by sin and trouble, 
if we are failing and falling all over the place in our life, help us to fall on the grace that rescues us and picks us up and reminds us that indeed miracle of